Good morning and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, this past week, about 15 pastors from our presbytery went away for our annual pastor's retreat. We rented a large house at Lake Anna, and it was beautiful, quiet, and peaceful. We spent unhurried time worshiping together, sharing grace stories, affirming one another, eating really well together, and laughing a lot together as well. It was a sweet and refresh, a refreshing time for all of us because we really needed it because doing ministry during the pandemic has been challenging, confusing, and exhausting for us all. Now, you may not know this, but October is Pastors Appreciation Month. It really should be called Pastors and Church, uh, Church Staff Appreciation Month because women on church staffs work just as hard, carry the same burdens, and experience the same challenges as pastors. So I want to encourage you, Christ Central, would you send an email or a note to both the men and the women on our church staff, letting them know how much you appreciate them and all that they do for our church? You may not know this, but our church staff works really, really hard for you because they love you very much. And, um, and the reason why our church staff loves you so much is because Jesus loves you. If Jesus thought that you were worth dying for, then you must be precious to him. And if you're precious to Jesus... And you're precious to us. Now, I feel a little awkward asking you all to express your appreciation for the pastors and staff because it seems self-serving, and I suppose it is a little bit, but I can get over that because I want to do my part to make sure that our church family can just overwhelmingly and generously uh, express their appreciation for both the men and the women on our church staff. Now, if you knew how much they loved you, it would move you. It moves me to see them love you that the way that they do. And I, I can say this, as a senior pastor of this church, I get to work with the very best men and women in the whole world. And just, I appreciate uh, everyone on our staff so much. Well, we're in a sermon series called uh, Being the Church, and it's a study through the book of Acts. And we're studying, now the goal of this series is to study the early church as we find it in the book of Acts so that we might be more like the early church in appropriate ways for our context and time. And the title of today's sermon is Expanding Ministry. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts, to the book of Acts, chapter 6, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 7. People of God, this is the word of our God. Would you give it your careful attention? Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and did the ministry of the word. And what, was, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many other priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Here is the outline for my sermon today. First, the situation. 
Second, the solution. And third, the success. Let's begin with the situation. So this was the situation in Acts chapter 6. On the one hand, the church was exploding. People were being saved, and there were, the church was growing in numbers. You see, people were hearing the gospel, repenting of their sins, believing in Jesus as the Messiah, following Jesus as his disciples, and joining the newly formed church. Now, despite the persecution that had begun against the early church, this was an exciting time in the life of the early church as it was growing explosively. But, on the other hand, there was also a growing number of complaints. The more people there are, the more complaints there are. Complaining in the church and complaining about the leadership in the church is not a new phenomenon. It's been happening from the very beginning ever since the early church. You know, when I realized that even the apostles experienced complaining as they led the early church, I don't feel so bad when people at our church complain about the leadership of our church. And so I want to say to the pastors, elders, and ministry leaders of our church, listen to this. If the people complained when the apostles were leading, then it really shouldn't surprise us or discourage us when people complain when we're trying to lead the church. Now, dealing with complaints comes with the very territory of church leadership and really with any form of leadership, if you think about it, whether you're trying to lead in the home or in the workplace or trying to lead a sports team, someone will be complaining, right? But not all complaining is bad. In fact, some complaining is good. There are two types of complaining, which I'm going to call selfish complaining and righteous complaining. Selfish complaining, what's that? That's when you complain about something you don't like because you don't get your way, because your preferences aren't being met, because you didn't get your way, or just you're just unhappy about something because it doesn't please you. Selfish complaining is exhausting for leaders, and it threatens the peace and the unity of the church. But righteous complaining, that's when you complain about something because it's not right. Because something is unfair or unjust, and it needs to be corrected and made right. Righteous complaining is necessary and helpful to leaders, and it protects and advocates for the vulnerable and the powerless in the community. And in the long run, it serves and strengthens the community. And wise church leaders need to be able to discern the difference between selfish complaining and righteous complaining. So what were the church members in Acts chapter 6 complaining about? Were their complaints selfish complaints or righteous complaints? Let's take a look. Now the complaint uh, concerned the welfare of the widows in the church. And from the Old Testament, we know this, that God loves and cares for widows. He said that he himself would be their defender and their provider. And if widows were not able to earn their own living, and if they had no other relatives that could care, take care of them, then the church assumed the responsibility to take care of her widows. And through the sacrificial and generous giving of church members like Barnabas, you guys remember Barnabas? He sold a piece of property and gave all the proceeds to the church to be used for ministry. Because of the generosity of church members, the apostles had funds to buy and distribute food to widows. But there was a problem. There was an unfair and unjust distribution of food because one group of widows were being neglected. They were either not getting the food that they needed or they were not getting as much food as all the other widows. You see, there were two groups of Jews in the Jerusalem church. 
the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenist Jews. Now, the Hebraic Jews were the Jews who were born and raised in Israel, and they spoke primarily Aramaic. Aramaic was their first language. Hellenist Jews were Jews who were born and raised outside of Israel, but they returned to Israel, relocated to Israel, and their first language was Greek. Now, the Hellenist Jews didn't just speak Greek, but they also thought and behaved like Greeks. They had absorbed the Greek culture. While the Hebraic Jews were those that uh, were born and raised in Israel, and they tended to embrace and promote kind of traditional Hebrew culture. So the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenist Jews were very different. Both Jews, but different, because they spoke different first languages, and they came from two different cultures. And at that time in Israel, the estimate was that 80% of the Jews were Hebraic Jews and about 20% were Greek-speaking or Hellenist Jews. So the majority in Israel at that time were Hebraic Jews and the minority were the uh, Greek-speaking Jews. And we can assume that was the ratio in the Jerusalem church as well. So in the church, the Hebraic Jews were the majority and the Greek-speaking Jews were the minority. And according to verse 1, it was the Greek-speaking widows who were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. It was the widows from the minority group in the church that was being neglected. And so, the Greek-speaking Jews, seeing that their widows were being neglected, spoke up and brought their complaint to the apostles. So this was a righteous complaint by the Greek-speaking Jews because what was happening to their widows was not right. It was unjust. And it had to be corrected. Now, we don't know what the cause for this injustice was. Was it due to intentional, preferential treatment of Hebraic widows? Or was it due to a flawed and inefficient system, a distribution system that unintentionally uh, privileged Hebraic widows and unintentionally overlooked Greek-speaking widows? We don't know what the cause was, but we do know the impact. The impact was... Greek-speaking widows were neglected from the daily distribution of food. And that was not right. It was not fair. It was not just. Now, let me try to contextualize this. If the church in Acts 6 was the Korean immigrant church, then the Hebraic Jews would be like the first-generation Korean-speaking Koreans, and the Greek-speaking Jews would be like the second-generation English-speaking Koreans, Right? Both Koreans, but very different, both linguistically and culturally. And in the Korean immigrant church, the first generation Korean-speaking Koreans were the majority, while the second generation English-speaking Koreans were the minority. And we have all, if you grew up in the Korean church, you might have seen or maybe even experienced broken and unfair systems in the Korean immigrant church where the first generation was privileged, while the second generation was neglected. I think all of us can relate to the cultural tensions and the frustrations that's at play in the Jerusalem church. But I think there's a difference. In the Korean immigrant church, the unfair treatment and even the, 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 the neglect of second generation was tolerated and accepted because of Korean culture and the big age gap. Because the first generation Koreans were much older and frankly, they're the ones that financed the church. So for those of us who belong to second generation, uh, we took it and uh, we thought we didn't even deserve equal treatment as first generation, again, because of Korean culture and 
the age gap. But let me ask you this. But what if the first and second generation were the same age? And what if the first and second generation were equally financing the church? And what if the widows in the second generation were being neglected while the widows from the first generation were being well taken care of? It would be a lot harder to accept and tolerate that situation, right? Because it would be manifestly unfair and not right. Well, I think that's how the Greek-speaking Jews were feeling in the Jerusalem church because their widows were being neglected while the Hebraic widows were being taken care of. So there were definitely cultural tensions in the Jerusalem church, and there was an injustice in the church. The widows from the minority group were being neglected and not being treated as the same as the widows from the dominant majority group. But there was another issue at play here. Responding to and resolving this righteous complaint threatened to distract the apostles from their primary calling, which was to pray and to preach God's word. You see, if the apostles spent all their time and all their energy serving tables or, or taking care of the widows, then they would not have time and energy to do their primary task, which was to preach the word of God. Taking care of widows in the church was very important work, but that was not the work that Jesus had given to his apostles. So how would the apostles respond to this righteous complaint so that, on the one hand, all the widows are taken care of, and at the same time, they can focus their attention and energy on their primary work of preaching the word of God? Let's look at the solution that the apostles proposed. In light of this righteous complaint made by the Greek-speaking Jews, the apostles did two things. First, they acknowledged the legitimacy of the complaint. They didn't dismiss it. They didn't minimize it. They didn't ignore it. They didn't demonize or disparage people who brought this complaint as troublemakers or ungrateful malcontents. They saw that it was a righteous complaint, and they saw that something needed to be done about the injustice that was happening to the Greek-speaking widows in the church. So second, what did the apostles do? They delegated the work of solving this problem to other gifted and godly men. They dealt with the legitimate need by expanding ministry, which is the title of my sermon today, by inviting more gifted and godly people into the ministry so that they can shoulder the work of ministry together. You see, as the church grew in number and as the ministry needs increased, the apostles expanded the ministry by calling more people into the ministry so that they could divide the work and share the work. In other words, the apostles couldn't do everything that needed to be done in the church, so they called others to join them and to help them. Now, the apostles did not regard the work of taking care of widows as somehow inferior to the work of preaching the gospel or that somehow that work was uh, beneath them. They knew that their priority was to preach the word of God and to pray. And so they instructed the church to choose godly and gifted men who could resolve this legitimate problem. And so the church put forward seven men. Verse 5 describes them as men of good repute and who were full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And you may not know this, but what's interesting is all seven names are Greek names. What that means is the seven men that were chosen were not from the majority group. 
They're from the minority group, from the Greek-speaking group. They're the ones that the church elected to oversee the food distribution program to the widows so that all the widows would be taken care of, including the Greek-speaking widows. And then the apostles prayed over them, laid their hands on them, and commissioned them uh, to the work of caring for the widows in the church. And this is where the office of deacon was first created in the church as a ministry of mercy to care for the vulnerable and the weak and the needy in the church. By expanding the ministry, the widows were taken care of. And at the same time, the apostles could devote their time and their energy to their work of preaching the gospel and to prayer. Now, I want to pause a minute here to consider some important and practical applications for our, for our church if we really are serious about wanting to be a church like the early church. And here's the first application. The church chooses her leaders based on character and competency. In Acts chapter 1, if you recall, Matthias was chosen to replace Judas by the casting of lots. But, that, but, but the choosing of leaders by casting lots was what we call descriptive. It was not meant to be the pattern to be repeated in the life of the church. Now, starting in Acts chapter 6, church leaders were chosen by the church based on their character and competency. This was prescriptive. This was meant to be the pattern that was to be repeated in the life of the ongoing church. And this is the way that leaders in the church should be chosen as the congregation recognizes men who have a good reputation and who are full of the spirit and of wisdom. To have a good reputation means that they have to be well-respected and well-thought of by the people in the community. To be full of the spirit means that their lives are bearing the fruit of the spirit in their lives, and it's evident that they're being controlled by the spirit and not by their flesh. And to be full of wisdom means that they're competent and able to make sound, wise good decisions for the church. So from now on, church leaders would be chosen um, based on their character and competency, based upon their giftedness and their godliness. And then they would be commissioned for their ministry with prayer and with the laying on of hands. And this, my friends, is the basic pro process that we follow at Christ Central when we seek to discern who God is calling to serve as leaders and officers uh, at our church. Here's a second application. Every member serves the church. You see, in the church, the work of ministry must be shared. If the apostles couldn't do everything in the church, then surely the pastors cannot do everything in the church. In fact, I would say it's disastrous for both pastors and the church when either pastors try to do everything or the church expects the pastors to do everything. And at, and at our church, I'm so grateful that we understand this. We understand that pastors have their specific roles and responsibilities. We understand that elders have their specific roles and responsibilities. We understand that deacons and deaconesses have their specific roles and responsibilities. And we also understand that members have their specific roles and responsibilities. And we go over this explicitly and extensively in our membership class. You see, every member of the Church of Christ. Every follower of Jesus is gifted by the Holy Spirit for ministry. Whether you have some sort of speaking gift or some sort of serving gift, the Holy Spirit has given you some gift 
that you can use to serve and to edify the body of Christ, to help build up the church. So if you're a member of our church, and if you're not now actively serving in a ministry, then can I encourage you to discern what your spiritual gift is and then get busy using that spiritual gift to bless and to serve the church. Now, if you need help uh, discerning what your spiritual gift may be, that's what the staff is here for. And we'll help you discern what your gift is, and then we'll place you in the proper ministries where you can flourish and be a blessing to others. And in fact, that's what CC 103 is all about in our membership class process. Listen, friends, when every member in the church family is doing what they are called to do, when the pastors are preaching the word and praying, when the elders are shepherding, when the deacons and deaconesses are serving and leading the way in mercy ministry, and when members are using their gifts to serve and to edify the church and sharing their faith, that is when our church is the most healthy and the most fruitful. That is when we're, that is when we're going to see the word of God increase and the gospel go forward. That's when we're going to see the people of God discipled and shepherded well. That's when we're going to see the poor, the vulnerable, and the powerless being cared for. And that is when the lost will be reached with the gospel because they won't just be hearing the truth of the gospel, but they'll also be seeing the beauty of the gospel in the ways we practically love one another and love our community. Here's the third application. The importance of mercy ministry. If you look at the early church right now in Acts chapter 6, you see that they don't just preach the gospel. They also cared for the poor, the vulnerable, and the powerless. And at that time, the most vulnerable, the most poor, and the most uh, needy were widows. And the church took care of them. You see, the ministry of the word and the ministry of mercy must go hand in hand. The preaching of the gospel was adorned and beautified with the doing of works of mercy and justice. You see, as a church... Yes, we must preach the gospel, but we must not only preach the gospel. We must do good works of mercy and justice as we care for our neighbors in need. You see, preaching the gospel without doing works of mercy and justice makes the, our preaching of the gospel powerless. But just doing works of mercy and justice without preaching the gospel makes our works of mercy and justice incomprehensible. We need both. So as a church that wants to be like the early church that we find here in, in Acts chapter 6, we must both declare the love of Christ with our beautiful words and at the same time demonstrate the love of Christ with our beautiful deeds. Both go hand in hand. Now before I move on to my last point, I want to spend some time reflecting on verse 5. Now verse 5 is one of those sneaky verses that you can just read right over and you see no meaning or importance in that verse. Let me unpack it for you a little bit. Verse 5 says, and what they said, which is the apostles' proposed solution, pleased the whole gathering. I love that. The proposal of the apostles to resolve the injustice of Greek-speaking widows being neglected pleased the whole gathering. It didn't just please the Greek-speaking Jews. It pleased the whole gathering, including the Hebraic Jews. You know, the Hebraic Jews could have easily said, well, the system of food distribution is working fine for our widows. They're getting their daily food. No need to fix what's not broken. The Hebraic Jews didn't demand the status quo because it was working for them. 
and for their widows. The Hebraic Jews were willing to move forward with the proposed solution because they realized that their current system of food distribution wasn't working for all the widows. Maybe the, maybe the Hebraic widows have been getting more food than they should have. And if the same amount of food is redistributed equally and fairly, do you know what that means? That means those who are used to getting more would start to get less, so that those who are used to getting less might get a little more. It's a zero-sum game. The Hebraic Jews, who were the majority, who had all the power in the church, they were willing to embrace a situation that would be more fair and more equitable for all the widows in the church, even if it meant that their widows would get less than what they were used to. Or maybe the church would have to invest more of its money into the food distribution program so that all the widows could be taken care of. But friends, either way, don't you see? Someone has to sacrifice. Either their break widows would have to get less, or the church as a whole would have to give more for the Greek-speaking widows to be taken care of. And yet, this situation pleased the whole gathering. But how? How were the Hebraic Jews able to be pleased with the situation that would take away some of the privileges that they'd grown accustomed to so that the minority could get what was fair? Only by the power of the gospel. You see, the Hebraic Jews had been changed by the power of the gospel, and so they were able to not only look out for their own interests, but to begin to look out for the interests of others. In the words of Philippians chapter 2, they were able to have the mind of Christ. They believed in Jesus, the one who considered their interest is more important than his own. They believed in Jesus, the one who sacrificed his privileges, even his very life, for their benefit. They believed in a Savior who was willing to experience loss for their gain. And because their hearts have been captivated and changed by the sacrificial love of Christ for them, they are now able to joyfully experience a little loss for the benefit of others in the church family. Listen, when you see Jesus laying down his rights and his privileges for your gain, you're able to begin to lay down some of your rights some of your privileges, and maybe even give up some of your food so that others can eat. Think about this. How discouraging and how unchristlike it would have been if the Hebraic widows got more than they needed so that they were saving and storing up for themselves while the Greek-speaking widows were going hungry. That would be terrible. The Hebraic Jews understood that there needed to be a fair and a just system of food distribution that didn't just benefit the Hebraic widows, but a system that benefited all the widows. And they were all willing to change and correct the current system so that the system might work for everyone and not just for them. You see, when you are changed by the gospel, it frees you to pursue justice, to pursue systems and structures that treat everyone fairly, justly, and equitably, even if it means that you get less than what you're used to getting. So the problem 
was that some widows were being neglected of their daily food, and the solution was to expand ministry by calling new people into the ministry so that they could take care of the widows while the apostles can continue to focus on preaching the gospel. Lastly, let's consider the success of the solution. So how did the solution work? According to verse 7, it says this, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So the solution was a wild success. It had great results. All the widows, including the Greek-speaking widows, were now being taken care of. Praise God! And also, because the apostles can focus on their work of praying and preaching the gospel, the word of God increased. Praise God! Also, verse 7 says, interestingly, that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why does Luke include that little detail? It seems so random. <laughs> so a lot of Old Testament priests became Christians. Why is that interesting? Well, I think it's interesting because once the deacons of the church started, started to care for the poor, that's when we see priests being converted to the Christian faith. If you recall, the Old Testament gave the duty of caring for the vulnerable to who? Not to the kings, not to the prophets, but to the priests. And maybe when the priests saw the church caring for the poor in deeply sacrificial ways, maybe they got convicted. And maybe they saw the church beautifully embodying the caring and priestly heart of God, and they were moved by it, and they wanted to join the church as they cared for the vulnerable and the poor and the powerless. You see, as the apostles preached the gospel and as the church cared for widows and showed practical love for the most vulnerable and the most powerless members, it was a beautiful gospel witness. Especially to the priests. Because they saw that the church didn't just preach grace, but they demonstrated grace to the people that needed it the most. So what? What's the takeaway uh, for our church today? I have three takeaways, three vitally important things that I want us to remember as a church if we are serious about being like the church, like the early church that we find in Acts 6 here. And here's the first. We must remember the vital importance of seeking justice. When we come to realize that something is wrong, if a system is not working, if it's treating some people unfairly, if there is an injustice, especially in the church, then we must seek to correct it and reform it. Just because something's been done for a long time, just because something worked in the past, if we realize in the present moment that it's not working, that it's not treating everyone within that system fairly and equally and equitably, then we must have the humility and the courage to correct it, even if it means reforming and revamping systems, structures, and processes. And as people who've been changed by the gospel, we must have the humility to no longer just ask, does this work for me? Does this work for my family? We must also learn how to ask, does this work for everyone else? And we must humbly and courageously and wisely pursue solutions to make the church a more just, a more righteous, a more fair, and a more safe place for all people, not for just some people, but for all people.
because all of God's people in God's church, whether they're in the majority or the minority, whether they're male or female, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're white collar or blue collar, they're all precious to God. And because that's true, it is our responsibility to make sure every precious image bearer of God is treated fairly, equitably, and justly. And even beyond the church, as citizens of the state, we must work for just and fair systems and policies that work for all citizens. We must not be content with systems that work just for us or for people that look like us. We must work for systems and structures and laws and policies that are fair and just for everyone, even if it means that we might have to give up some of the privileges that we have become accustomed to. Now, why would anyone do that? Why would we ever do that? Because we follow a Savior who gave up his privileges and all of his benefits for the sake of others. You see, the gospel empowers us to truly love our neighbors as we love ourselves. The gospel empowers us to seek the welfare of others and not just our own. The gospel does that in a beautiful and powerful way. Second, we must remember the vital importance of every member ministry. As I said, the pastors, elders, deacons, deaconesses, and the staff cannot do everything that needs to be done in the church. The church was not designed to be led by a few, but to be served by the whole. The church cannot run the way it was designed to run unless all the members of the church use their gifts to serve and to edify the body. That's why if you become a member of our church, we urge you to find a ministry where you can serve in. So if you're gifted with words, then find a ministry where you can use your words to bless, encourage, and affirm other people. If you're gifted with deeds, then find a ministry where you can use your hands and the things that you do to bless and serve other people. Our church needs every single one of our members, and we need the gifts of every single one of our members. Jesus didn't give you your gifts so you could bury it in the ground or keep it to yourself. He gave you your gifts so you could use it to bless his church. So go ahead, start using your gifts and being a blessing to this church family, if you're not already. And lastly, we must remember the vital importance of deep ministry. The church, listen, I, I need everyone to hear me very carefully, because I know if someone misunderstands me, they say, oh, Pastor Owen doesn't believe in preaching the gospel anymore. Listen, the church must preach the gospel. That is our primary task. But preaching the gospel is not our only task. That's what I'm saying. We must do works of mercy and justice because our works of mercy and justice adorn and beautify and support the gospel that we preach. So Christ's central family, I'll say it again because it's so important. As a church, we must not only declare the love of Christ with our beautiful words, but we must also demonstrate the love of Christ with our beautiful deeds. Gospel ministry is a ministry of both word and deed. And we must, if we want to be serious about being like the early church, we have to see this and embrace this. So Christ Central, what does it mean to be a church that is like the early church? It means 
that we're to seek justice for all people in the church. Second, it means that we're to use our gifts to serve and edify the church. And third, it means that we not only declare the love of God with our words, but we also demonstrate it beautifully with our beautiful deeds. And when that happens, may the Lord Jesus be pleased to increase the word of God, that the gospel might go forward, and that many, many disciples might be multiplied to the glory of Christ and for the joy of greater Metro D.C. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. and.